If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John and chapter 3. If you're a first-time guest with us here today, we're so thankful that you're here. And if you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat in front of you, and that is our gift to you. We could think of nothing greater to give you uh, than a copy of God's Word as it has changed all of our lives. 1 John chapter 3. We come today to a new argument in view of who we are in Christ. In verse 2 of chapter 3, excuse me, verse 1, John has said, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So we are. The children of God. He gives us an identity, a position of being, something that is true of us because of what God and God alone has done. And then John goes on to explain that the natural working out of that position, so we are, being called children of God, is that we will seek to live lives that are other than the lives of those in the fallen world around us. That we will seek to live lives of holiness. Lives that fall in line with the character and the nature of Christ. And why? Because we have been made, we have been called to be children of God. And now here... In verses 10 through 15, he goes on to the next reality, which is in fact linked to what he's already talked about in our holiness and our growing in Christ likeness. And the argument in these verses is that we would love the body of Christ. Now, if we're all honest this morning, we struggle with that, don't we? We struggle to love the church well. I mean, how can we come with all of our differences and all of the variation in the body and still yet love one another in a way that is unique and other than the way that the world loves? Well, the argument that John has already given is not just try hard. It's not just straighten up and love like you ought to. That's not the message here. In fact, it's rooted in that phrase, so we are. It's rooted in who we, we are, and that is the reason why we will inevitably grow to love one another. If we, in fact, aim at loving one another just for the sake of love, and we are not rooted in Christ, the whole thing turns into a disaster. We end up loving out of our own views of the world and our own opinions and perspectives and not out of the seat of what Christ has done for us. Now, the way that that John speaks in this particular passage, it's not something to be debated. This isn't something to be argued. This is, in fact, the true test of our conversion. This is something that comes as natural as breathing in the body of Christ. It will be an inevitable reality. When the people of God rest in what God and God alone has done, they will, in fact, begin to love one another. So with that in mind, if you would stand to do honor to the reading of God's Word, starting 
in verse 10. Now, some of you will have different divisions in your Bible, and it'll divide the love one another out to actually begin in verse 11. We don't fault the Bible translators for putting headers in the wrong place. It's okay. We just go on. It's highly subjective, isn't it? Starting in verse 10. By this it is evident that we are children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is the word of God to each one of us this morning, and we should be thankful. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning grateful for your grace, thankful that you have called us out of death into life, thankful that you have made us new, thankful that you have added us into the body of Christ. And Father, we are thankful for your grace on the days that we don't love well. We struggle, and we ask your mercy today to give us a clearer view of what it is, the foundation of love in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May be seated. There's always this guessing game about how old the water is up here. I grew up in Missouri. Way worse things. We have to be careful Not just to say that we are Christians and then to go on into our lives living as though nothing had ever changed. Our our assurance of our being in Christ doesn't come from our profession of faith. It comes rather from the fruit that we see in our lives. It comes when we analyze and when we prayerfully consider what God is doing in us. Our assurance is rooted in what Christ has done, in who we are, and then that is evidenced in how it has worked out in our lives. It's interesting as we come to this passage on loving one another in the body of Christ, how John presents it. Again, he doesn't present this as, I think this would be a good thing for you to do. He doesn't present it as a debate, an argument, something that might come to pass. He presents it as the inevitable outworking of those who have been bought by the precious blood of Christ. And he presents it in this interesting twofold manner. First, he presents it as an exhortation, as an encouragement that we should increasingly love the body of Christ. That this is an area where we all need to grow. There's not one of us who should stand up this morning and say, boy, I can tell you how to love the church well. I am the shining example of what genuine love in the body of Christ looks like. No, we know that it is our head Christ who exemplifies love to the body. 
The rest of us are just growing. But, so we have here John's exhortation to grow in Christ-likeness in loving the body. But then secondly, not only is it an exhortation, it's also a test of our faith. Again, it's a ground of our assurance. Do you really have love for the body of Christ? We see the exhortation in verse 11. Look with me. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, that we should do this. Not that we always do, but that in an increasing fashion, this should be the aim of our Christian walk, not merely just us and Jesus, that's nowhere in the Bible, but that we in fact should aim to love the whole body of Christ, every person that has been bought with the blood of Christ. We should love them. But then he goes on in verses 12 through 15 to give us this great test of the assurance of our faith. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do you see how there's this interrelating between our individual growing in holiness and our love for the body of Christ? We live in a day and age where people are convinced that we can love one another in the body of Christ without pursuing holiness. That is a lie. The only way to love biblically is to love as we grow in an understanding of who Christ is and seeking to emulate His character and His nature. And he goes on, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Boy, that would be a great moniker for most church growth pundits today. To just let that sink into their hearts and lives. We're not here trying to make the world love us. The world's not going to love us. Why? Because of verse 19 of chapter 5. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's not in their nature. It's not going to happen. But as we grow in holiness, we can continue to grow in love and affection for our brothers. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. There is grace in this passage. John and the New Testament never asks us just to straighten up and fly right and do something without first reminding us of who we are. The grace in this passage is that we are not just being having imperatives heaped on top of us to figure out loving one another in the body of Christ according to our own strength, the grace is that in fact we have a reminder of who we are and out of that reminder then we are compelled naturally to grow in loving the body of Christ. It's not our own strength in which we love but rather the doctrinal and, and real reality that we have been bought by the blood of Christ. This is the tenor of the entire New Testament. There is always doctrine first, a reality about our identity, a reality about what God has done apart from us, in spite of us, and then, and then and only then, comes the practice, the working it out in our lives. There is first and primarily this message in the Bible. People... <clears throat> tend to go to the Bible as a book of rules. But can I tell you, that is a very low view of Scripture. 
If you think the Bible is just kind of an index of rules that we can keep, you have misunderstood the Bible wholesale. Because what the Bible tells us first and primarily, two things. It tells us who we are, and then it tells us who God is. And if we don't understand who God is, and we don't understand who we are, I can promise you this, we'll never love anybody. It's the Bible's method, because it's God's inspiration, and so we should submit to it, that we would come to a greater awareness of who the living God is, and then out of that, that our practices should naturally follow. The apostles were not just moralistic men. They were men that were dead in their trespasses, and God had made them alive. By His divine work alone, by sheer mercy and grace, And then and only then, as they came to understand who the living God was, then they had a complete and radical change in the practice of how they walked with God. It was no longer just religious fervor. It was walking in grace. And so it should be in our lives. So it is that we come here and we don't just find John asking us to love one another and shaming us into loving one another. He's reminding us of who we are. And then he is saying, beloved, if this is who we are, if if this is what guides and directs the entirety of the life of the church, then isn't it natural that we will love one another? Some of the doctrines we're going to talk about today. At one time when I was young in my understanding of them, I would be challenged with why do these things matter? The more that I walk through Scripture, the more that I realize that the doctrines of grace and and the the Word of God and, and having those things right ultimately matter because nothing else happens downstream until we have those things in place. We, in fact, will love out of the wrong vantage point. We will practice out of the wrong vantage point until we have the right footing. So John is not writing here just to be a moralist. He is writing that we would remember our identity in Christ. Now he's also writing, and we must be reminded that he has to be writing, and in fact he is to the Gnostics and all of the heresies that are surrounding the church when he's writing this letter, in opposition to people who have a mind against the law, a mind against the exhortations and the edicts of God. And those people abound in the church today, and many of them claim grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone as the basis of their faith. Now, we know that the law never grants us salvation. Again, we're not people trying to keep the rules, and then because we've kept the rules well enough, God loves us. That's not how salvation works, and it's not how the law works. The law is our schoolmaster to teach us that in our own strength, we are dead. There is no way that we can, in fact, honor God. That's what the law does. But then in Christ, when we come to Christ, when we've been made anew, we are people who genuinely want to understand how it is that God wants us to live and we submit ourselves to His holy standard. So really there are two dangers here as we approach this topic of loving the body of Christ. One danger is being legalistic. 
The kind of individual that says just love one another. And the new legalism is love one another in accordance with the world standards so that the world can see us love one another in, fa- in a fashion that they think is love. That's legalism. It's loving by our own strength, in our own right, by our own law. It's a weird kind of legalism in our day and age. But it's legalism. Now the other, uh, the other part... The other danger is antinomianism. Again, being against, anti, the law. Um, And and often I think when we think about anti-law people, we think, well, those must just be a bunch of rebellious people. And they are. But not just just people who commit heavy-handed sins. I believe antinomians, people who are against the law, are often individuals who are highly orthodox. They know their doctrine. They can answer the questions. They, they, in fact, say they know Jesus. But the problem, the real problem, is none of the doctrine that they say they believe really comes out in their living. There are individuals who say, I want to be saved by grace, but I don't want to love my neighbor. Well, friends, that's contrary to what we have been given in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that it's not a struggle to love our neighbor, even in Christ. I'm not saying that there aren't times where we need to cry out to God, in fact, every day of our lives, for the grace and strength to continue loving. But friends, the clear exhortation here is that we should love. We also need to see the clear foundation. You see, we should never unload morality without first giving people an understanding of who they are in Christ. There is this tendency religiously inside the Christian church for us to kind of harumph against people's sins. How can they live that way? Well, friend, if you understand your Bible and you understand who people are apart from the grace of God, how could they not live that way? We never get anywhere by shaming people into right living because what ends up happening is anathema. It's self-righteousness. It's not real holiness. And it's not real love. So we must understand who we are before we go on seeking to walk in the newness of what Christ has done. We should never neglect also the reality of the new creation that we are in Christ and of its natural results in our life. The whole message of the gospel is that we are saved into the church. We are saved into the body of Christ. We are saved into this group of people that God is miraculously drawing together, even though we are radically different, that we might display a unique, different kind of love. A kind of love that grows us in Christ-likeness. A kind of love that is sacrificial. A kind of love that the world looks at and marvels over. And this isn't new. It's in fact what John is saying here. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. John's saying, I'm I'm not here to preach to you something that is new. I'm not here to tell you something that you haven't heard. I'm here just reminding you of who you are and reminding you, because you are called children of God, what that will look like in your life. In fact, as we walk through John's Gospel from chapter 13 through 17, we see that in the shadow of the cross, as Jesus is nearing the end of His earthly ministry, He is exhorting the church to love one another. It's not new. It's what Christ has always commanded. John 13, a new commandment I give to you, Jesus says. 
that you will love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, genuine love, not worldly love, but the kind of love that Christ has given one for another. This isn't new. Again, this is a commandment straight from the lips of our Lord. John's saying, I'm not a legalist. I'm not here just heaping rules on you. I am here, beloved, this morning to remind you in the grace of Christ of what He has done for you, of who you are called children of God, and that that reality that then will work itself out naturally in a way where you will love one another in a fashion that the world will marvel at. And I think part of the reason why the world no longer marvels in our generation at the love of the church is because we aren't loving according to the Word of God. We're loving according to the cultural norms. We're loving according to what all of the the surveys and statistics say about how we should love, about uh, the modern conceptions of what it means to be accepting and kind and all of those things, and not according to the Word of God. But friends, it's not just John that talks, and it's not just Jesus that talks, if that weren't enough, about loving the body of Christ. This is the tone of the entire New Testament. Do we not remember the chapter uh, 13 of 1 Corinthians speaking of using our spiritual giftings and using them in a way that is loving? And that love is a great gift to the church? Or Peter's writing, 1 Peter chapter 3, finally, all of you having unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing, that you might love your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ well. Not only is Jesus putting this before us, not only as John reminding us this morning, not only do all of the apostles throughout the New Testament lay down a foundation that we should and exhort us that we should love one another in the body of Christ. Friends, loving in the body of Christ is a fact of church history. One of the things that set the people of God apart in the first century was the way that they loved one another. The reality that they put their own personal interests aside. They, they understood in light of Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2. And you're going to have to forgive me. I'm going to bounce to chapter 2 of Ephesians often this morning. Uh, because it's so interconnected. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Do you know there are a thousand reasons why we shouldn't love one another in the body of Christ this morning? Your parents raised you differently than my parents raised you. I had the privilege of growing up in Missouri. You didn't, many of you. That was a joke. Um, We have so many differences. But part of what Paul is saying is all of those differences, all of those dividing walls. Now he's aiming at the dividing between Jews and Gentiles. But I, I think there's a broad application that every reason we have not to love one another is overcome by one reality. We are called children of God. If that is a reality in our life, then you know what? Every excuse we have not to love one another in the body of Christ really is insignificant, isn't it? And it's insufficient. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't struggle to work through those things. We're all human and we we, we all sin and we all are 
progressively being sanctified. The message that I preached last Sunday about the fact that we are not perfectionists, that we don't believe that this side of heaven, we're, we're perfect in our walk. It applies to this topic of loving one another in the body of Christ. It has to. Because we don't do it well so often. But friends, we've been given this new identity and the first century church understood. And and one of the reasons I I think that that the example was so clear in their generation, and maybe I'm wrong here, is that they didn't aim at so many of the divisions that we've heaped up for ourselves. They aimed at genuinely loving one another in light of the identity that they had in Christ. That was sufficient for them. They were called children of God. Whatever else the world divides us in, Christ brings us together and allows us to love well. And here, we have to understand, I think, a great difference between the first century and how we conceive love in our generation is in our generation, when you say, I love someone or I love something, generally we're talking about our affections, aren't we? We're talking about our feelings towards a specific thing or a specific person, whether or not they make us happy and joyful and warm and fuzzy inside, or we kind of just snarl in the bottom recesses of our hearts while we smile at them on Sunday morning and say, I love you. Um, we talk about those inner, uh, when we talk about love, we're talking about those inner affections. I don't think that's what the first century Christian understood love to be. I think they understood love to be an action, a way of relating to one another, a, a way of living life that can acknowledge at times, I really don't like some of how you are, or maybe we kind of bristle against one another, but in spite of those areas where we rub against one another, I can actually respond to you in Christ-likeness, and I can act in love. And you know, it's funny, in my own personal walk, and, and maybe this is unique, but I don't think it is, as you begin to love people in your actions, in your disposition, and the way that you relate to them, even though your affections are not there yet, Oftentimes, what ends up happening is the affections follow in time. See, there really are two practical results to loving the body of Christ well. And again, I don't want you to hear this as me heaping on top of you, love better, be better, life point, you stink at loving, you should just be a better church. That's not what I'm saying because that's not what John is saying. But there are two practical results, two practical realities that come in light of a church that loves well. One, it's interconnected to the entire reason that John is writing this letter, and that is that we would have joy and that our joy would be rooted in our fellowship with God. Do you know what else is rooted in our fellowship with God? Our love one for another. And our joy, so so then the, the argument here is a practical outworking of our loving the body of Christ well is that we have more joy in the body. We have more joy in what God is doing. Inevitably, when individuals complain about our church or about the Christian church in general, what I hear in the background is generally individuals who are not engaged in practically loving the body of Christ. Because the more that you give of yourself to the body, the more that your joy will be in the fellowship and communion of the saints. That's one practical outworking is that our joy is inflamed by loving one another. Now, the other one 
is that this is our true witness to the world. When Jesus said, and you are my witnesses, I think in our generation we hear that means we're going to go door to door, knock door to door and knock on doors and we're going we're gonna to hand out tracts and we're going to do all of these things. But I believe that part and parcel to what Jesus is saying is you are my witnesses because I've made you new. Because the Spirit has regenerated you. Because you are called children of God. And your witness will be the natural outworking of how you live in the body of Christ. The way that you genuinely serve one another and care for one another and lay down your lives for one another is in fact your witness. It's not only personal evangelism, it's the way that you relate to those who are in the body of Christ. So if this is a reality, and it is, that this is an exhortation that we should love and a clear test, then questions must follow. And this is what I want to get to in this passage It's important that we understand what a Christian is. It's important that we understand what makes a Christian. Because if we don't get that right, we will have a weak foundation on which the church operates in understanding of what loving one another in the body of Christ actually is. If we misunderstand how we become Christians, we won't hang out long to love the body. If we fail to understand the weight of the glorious love that God has for us in making us Christians, our Christian love will be a put-off to everyone around us. If we are to love well, it's not the doing that we must concentrate on. If we are actually going to love the body of Christ well, you don't need a rah-rah speech from a pastor. If you're going to love the body of Christ well, your mind must be focused and fixed on who you are in Christ. Everything in the body of Christ that is genuine love, born out of the working of the Spirit of God among the saints, hinges on three words. So we are. This is who we are. And so we come to this question... How did we become who we are? So interesting how John seems to interweave the reality of our coming to faith doctrinally and then interlace its implications. And I have to be honest with you, when I came to these doctrines in this text and I'm like, here they are again. And these people are going to think that all I have to talk about are are these doctrines of grace. And we've already been over all of this. I've preached on this for so long that if anybody is not aware about where I stand on these biblical issues, you've fallen asleep. I promise you. I had a friend call me this week and tell me, pastor's son, and tell me, I, I don't know why no one has ever taught me these things. Why is it that, Jay, you and I went to college together and in our college institution that is Baptist and is committed. It it has the word Bible in the name Baptist Bible College. I mean, I think we know where they're at. They might be Baptist and they might like the Bible. Yet the brother's question was, why have we not been taught these realities? And I'll tell you why. Because one, it will cost you something. It's going to tick some people off. And because two, we are so We are so bound in our generation at appealing to the masses 
at trying to please people, at trying to just build up a crowd, that we have left the substantial doctrines that, that God has given us through pastors and teachers throughout the centuries. And in fact, what goes out the door with that doctrinal teaching is all of the love of the church and all of the effectiveness of her witness. And so as I come back to these doctrinal truths, if you feel like, and, and, and friends, we all need to somehow, I think, in a certain respect, repent of ever growing weary of hearing these realities. Because they're glorious. They're wonderful. If they are merely something that a bunch of old, crusty, theologically minded men came up with at some council, and that's, that's the, the, the sum total of what they are, then I am with the crowd that says boring. But if this is actually inspired of God, and what God has actually done for us. It is the very foundation for why we will worship God and love one another throughout all of eternity. Amen. And we should never neglect what a great salvation that we have. We should be ashamed when we gloss over these doctrinal realities. We should never pass them by. But here we have a clear implication of what a Christian is. First John Chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. What is a Christian? Well, verse 14 says clearly in that one little phrase that we are individuals who have passed from death into life. That word past is in the perfect tense, meaning it's something that has happened in the past and has ongoing implications in the here and now. We have been ransomed out of death and we have been moved into the kingdom of light. This is something not that we have done, but something that by God's grace and His kindness has happened to us. Christians are not mere religious people. We are not just another group of people who adhere to a list of tenets. We are not just people who try to do better. We are not individuals that are just trying to be better than our neighbor. We are individuals who have been transferred from the kingdom of death, from being dead in our trespasses and sins. And now at this very moment, if you are in Christ, you are alive. And that by grace alone. The Bible's not ambiguous about this fact. In fact, this brother, and it's such a delightful conversation I had. If you talk to me individually this week, I'm probably going to geek out about this one conversation for the next two or three months. Then I'll maybe get over it. It's a fantastic conversation. Um, and I was going somewhere with that. Oh, because the, the, the part of the conversation was, this is so plain in the text. That This is so clear all throughout the Bible. That This is, that this is so obvious. And it is. It's not really, it's an, it's an argument for theological circles, but when you're wandering in the Bible, it's not an argument at all. It's just what's being spoken of. It's a plain, if we read the text plainly, this is the reality. We were all at one time spiritually dead under Adam. The whole world, John tells us in verse 19 of chapter 5, lies in the power of the evil one. We, by nature, were children of wrath. Paul says in Roman, Romans chapter 5, death reigns in our mortal bodies. This isn't just speaking of individuals who commit heinous acts of sin. This is speaking of every individual born into this world under Adam. This is who we are apart from the grace of God. We are born in sin. We are born dead, spiritually speaking. 
When Adam sinned, there was a threefold death that was pronounced upon all of humanity. One, we died physically, although that takes time and it took time for Adam. We died and will one day reap, if we are not in Christ, an eternal death. Then we also died spiritually. And this is what I think we need to see here and what what John is reminding the church of in this passage is a foundation for their genuine love. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, the first thing that it means is that we do not know God. We don't hunger for Him. We don't seek after Him. Now, we seek after His benefits, but we don't seek after Him and His glorious person. John chapter 17, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now if this is life, knowing God and knowing His Son, and that's what John is saying in in saying that his fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. He's speaking directly from the seed of Christ's Word, saying this is genuine joy and eternal life. If that is spiritual life, then spiritual death is the opposite. It is that we don't know God and we don't know Christ. That we have no joy in our fellowship with Christ and with the Father. The world doesn't have this joy of fellowship with God. The world doesn't seek after God. The world does not love God. The world doesn't honor God. And this is why it's so foolish to go to the world with the law of God and say, you should act better. They don't care. They don't know Him. That all he is to them is either an ethereal big fella upstairs that's like Santa Claus, and if you do good, he'll make sure your life's bearable, or he's someone to be hated and despised because of what he has allowed into your life. But, but he's, he's, he's not someone they know. I think Paul puts it succinctly what spiritual death is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. He says that we all, at one time, were without God in the world. Marry that together with chapter 5, verse 19. We all, at one time, were without God in the world, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do you not see how great your salvation is? You were taken out of the hand of Satan, out of the grip of death, personified, and you we're made alive. So not only does death mean that we don't know Him, death also necessarily means that we are, spirit, we are dead to spiritual things. We don't know God and we don't think about godliness apart from the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 2 again, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of the world, of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the, like the rest of mankind. But we have been now brought from death to life. The world has no value for this great truth. If you go out and tell your lost friend that doesn't know Christ that you have been taken from death to life, they're going to look at you as though you were crazy because they have no ability to have value or or, uh, 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 appreciation for spiritual things. They live for the passions of their flesh, for the fleshly desires that they have. They don't concern themselves with what sin is. In fact, they'll laugh at the whole construct of sin. 
That's not something we should concern ourselves with. The modern age will say that's something that's arcane that was thought of long ago. But seriously, if, if we're going to be thoughtful people in 2021, we can't take this whole idea of sin seriously. We can. Why is it that these individuals can't see that reality because they are spiritually dead. Death reigns. And not only does it reign in a spiritual sense, friends, those of us have lived long enough and have watched people go out into the world and immerse themselves in the things of the world, we see that it takes hold in their physical reality too. Bit by bit, moment by moment, they come closer and closer to a physical death because sin really does kill you. So, here we have the reality of being spiritually dead is that we don't know God and we don't worship Him. So we have reason to worship God today. The apostle tells us that our state outside of grace was that we were dead, but God in His rich mercy interrupted every one of our lives who are in Christ and He has taken us from death to life. He has put this seed of life in us. He has regenerated us. He has made us anew. He has brought us to a point where we cry out to Christ for forgiveness and grace. Are you not all thankful this morning for the unilateral saving power of God? That while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you weren't waiting on a preacher, you weren't waiting on your acts to be straightened up, you weren't waiting for your own volition to get in line. You were there dead, but by grace alone, God interrupted in whatever means He used. If it was a pastor, if it, if it was a friend to speak the gospel to you, and then the, the, the Spirit of God regenerated you and brought you out of death into life, and all of a sudden you had this affection for Jesus and this affection for spiritual things. What a gift it is to know that the foundation of our love in the body of Christ is that we have been brought from death to life. 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here's the question. If that's a reality, and it is, how can that reality not change the way in which you relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ? And John's argument is it will have impact. It will work itself out into how you live. So then the question is, how do we know that we have passed from death death to life? We take everything that we just learned and we work it in reverse. We question, are we people who are alive to God? Are we people who have run to Christ in repentance and faith? Are we people who genuinely look at the Word of God and we see what God commands of us and we delight in seeking to honor Him? Not in our own strength, but in the strength that has been given to us because we have been brought from life to death. We see a big God and we see ourselves as small and insignificant and we naturally then begin to worship and to love our neighbor rightly. Again, and this is eternal life that we know that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The the more important question than do you love your neighbor is do you know God? Not do you know things about God? Not do you 
have a good handle on giving answers to Bible questions, but do you know the living God? Do you have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son through the work of the Spirit and that alone? Do you, do you know Him? Do you find joy in Him? Do you see that this whole world, including in so many areas your own life, is wrong and fallen? but that He is glorious and beautiful? Do you run to Him with your sin? Do you know Him? That's the question that we must ask. And if you don't know Him, the reality is you won't love anyone other than yourself. The only way to know God is by His knowing you and loving you. So can you say with Paul, what he says in Galatians chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's what it means to be alive. It's to be mindful of what God is doing in the world. And apparently it also means that we are aware that there is a new life in us, that we are growing. So not only have we passed from death to life, not only is that a reality, but look in verse 10, there's also this glorious truth. By this it is evident that we are children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Friends, not only have we passed from life to death, but we are, the Bible says, John says, we are of God. And this is a phrase that John loves to use. Again, chapter 5, verse 19, we are of God. But the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are individuals who have been born again. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are part of the household, the family of God. It gives us this picture that we've been, we've been born of God in such a way that now we all have some similar attributes. And those attributes are really that we know God and that we, have, we know we have been loved by God and that we seek to honor God in our living. That, that we have been made alive spiritually speaking. It's interesting how you can look at an individual and if you know their family, you can tell by their disposition, by the way they, they talk maybe or the way they look, that they belong to that particular family. Some of you were brought up with a great degree of culture and got to see, uh, got to watch John Wayne movies, I'm sure, growing up. There's that great movie, McClintock. And there's the, the, the scene, you'll remember, where they're trying to fire the Cantonese chef. And he says that if they fire him, he'll kill himself. And they said, look, we're not trying to fire you. We're trying to bring you in to be part of the family. And his response is, I'll be part of the family? Oh, okay, I'll drink too much. I'll get in fights. I'll yell all the time. I'll be part of the family. And then... Drago goes on to threaten him that he's still going to cut his ponytail off. It's a great movie. Sorry if you're not a John Wayne fan. But that illustrates the reality that we all have those tendencies, those characteristics. And what John is leaning into here is not, look, work up love, stir it up in the body. He's reminding us this is who we are. We were born again. As he answered Nicodemus, how can you see the kingdom of heaven? And he says, you can't unless you're born again. Now he pivots to the church and he says, because you are born again, you can love one another in the body of Christ. 
And you can take all of your excuses of why you don't love the body of Christ well and you can throw them against the reality of your being born again by the grace of God alone and then you will be able to walk on. To who we are that ultimately dictates how we love. It's what the Spirit alone has done in us that allows us to love one another. Matthew chapter 5 For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Friends, that's a soul-crushing statement if it's taken in an Armenian vein. Armenian vein. If it's taken in this vein that we must do better in our own ability in our own volition, by our own strength, it's soul-crushing because we're never going to measure up. But when we understand that John is saying to us that everything we do in loving is rooted in who we are and we look back at what Jesus is saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, we realize really what He is saying is positionally we're already perfect, live like it. Isn't that fantastic? We're not just trying to measure up in our own strength. We are, trying, we, we are now allowed to live in light of who God is and what He's done for us. Not only have we been taken from death to life, not only are we though of God, if that wasn't enough to just allow us to really reconsider how we walk in the body of Christ, there's also this reality in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That seems negative because it's a negative statement. But if if we turn it into a positive, we see what the children of God have. And that is, we have eternal life abiding in each one of us. We are of God. We have been brought from death to life. And so we have God's life abiding in us. It's what Paul writes of in Ephesians chapter 2. As he says, this is who you all once were. And then there that wonderful but that comes in in verse 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The picture again here of the Christian life is not what I, what I often see people describing it as, which is like we're just trying to measure up and we're trying to climb this hill and we're trying to be better the next day and we're trying to read our Bible more so that God will love us and and we in our own strength, by our own volition, are ultimately working ourselves into greater and greater degrees of glory, of sanctification. Sanctification is a process. We talked about that last week. But there is this reality that the apostles speak to us in this way. You have been seated in a heavenly place. At this moment, you are children of God. These are the realities of who you are. You at this moment, if you are a Christian, have eternal life abiding in you. The Spirit is indwelling you. You're not trying to be better tomorrow because positionally Christ has given you all of His righteousness. This is who you are. Now live in in light of that 
reality. That the Christian life is not trying to, one of trying to level up. We have the life of God in us. How can we do any better? We have the abiding, eternal life of God in us at this moment. It's what, what John has already spoken to in verse 9 when he tells us, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. God's eternal spirit, life, abides in the believer. So if you are a Christian, you're not trying to just be better. You're trying to live in light of who you already are. It's what is written in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You're not trying to be anything better than you are. You have been made a child of God. You are trying to walk in light of that reality. You see, you have, as a foundation church this morning, and I'll close with this, as a foundation for loving the body of Christ, you have three things. And there are three things that maybe you always keep in front of you. I tend to forget about them. And that is that you have passed from death to life. That you are of God. And that you have eternal life abiding in you. Now what would you say to someone who has all of that and they come and they despair about the church and they say, but she's just not what she should be. She, if I'm really going to love the church, the church better straighten up. Church better get her act together. Church better start behaving in a way that I like. Wouldn't you have pity on a person like that? Because you've neglected all that God has done for you in bringing you from death to life and making you a child of God and giving you the eternal abiding life of God residing in you. If we live our lives in a way where we only love conditionally on who our brothers and sisters are in their flesh, we'll never love at all. But if we live our lives in the body of Christ seeking to love one another, not out of a foundation of who we are naturally, but out of a foundation of who we are supernaturally. Who we have been made. How we have been grafted together in the body of Christ. Friends, I can tell you this. I think there's no end to the potential impact of our own congregation in this generation, in a world that, that is in the power of the evil one. If we really rest on these doctrines, that it is God and God alone that can take us from life to death, that it's only Him who can bring us into the body of Christ, that it is only Him who can bestow upon us eternal life, if these things really matter to us, and if we love one another out of those realities, then I think we really will be the witnesses that Christ has called us to be. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank You so much that you have divinely inspired these words, that you've given us an identity, that, you, that you've not come to us first with demands, but you've come to us with love, regenerating us, making us part of the body of Christ. And then, and only then, out of the joy that we have in knowing you, out of the joy that we have in knowing that we can never be more children of God than we are now, then and only then can we begin to genuinely love, not according to the sentimental dictates of this fallen generation that's in the power of the evil one, but we can love according to Your Word. We can love according to Your standard. We can love according to what You have spoken.